Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, and welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies. I'm your host, Ian Cook. Today we're talking about the writings of Pamela Price, State, Politics and Cultures in Modern South India, Honour, Authority and Morality. The book is published by Orion Blackswan and, as you can imagine, is written by Pamela Price. The book is a collection of essays previously published by Pamela, which deal with those big concepts that I mentioned in the subtitle, or Honour, authority and morality and they do so over quite a long period of time stretching way back from into the into the pre-colonial period right through to independence era and they do so across various south indian states i had the pleasure of talking with pamela just a few minutes before okay so without any further ado it gives me great pleasure to welcome pamela to the show thanks a lot for your wonderful book and thanks a lot for coming on thank you for having me um so before we start talking about the book itself i was wondering if you tell us a little bit about yourself um, what your um, discipline is, what your professional background is, and how you first became interested um, in India. Yes, well, um, I had decided um, by my sophomore year in college that I wanted to be a historian of Asia, but it was the opportunity to go to India for um, seven months on the University of Wisconsin College Year in India program that made me decide that it was India that I wanted to study. Um, Americans couldn't go to China at that time, and I thought there was not much fun to study a place that you couldn't visit. But um, my interest in political culture came about uh, through, you might say, a contingency. Um, I became politically involved in uh, 1968 and made decisions that affected my own life course. And I knew many people um, who were doing the same thing. So it occurred to me that ideas and values and ideologies and um, these political things could make a big difference in people's lives, not always at all times, of course, so that um, when I went to graduate school at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, political culture was something that I wanted to focus on. Now, um, Indira Gandhi was in power when I wanted to do my dissertation research, and um, it seemed that the best way to get a research visa since politics was out was to study the legal profession um, because lawyers had been actors in the presidency of Madras in the emergence of the nationalist movement um, in South India. But I couldn't find anything so interesting as the documents which were generated by litigation 
in reading these litigation documents, I found a level of penetration into daily life and political relations and values that uh, completely escaped me when I tried to do research on lawyers at the end of the 19th century and the early 20th century. So I moved into um, a study of these revenue estates, these zamandaris as they were called, and discovered as I reworked my material that these were little kingdoms that were adjusting to colonial rule. I uh, got a job, and I eventually got tenure, teaching in Oslo, Norway, um, and in Norway, the interest, as well as in Scandinavia, is not in colonial South Asia, but it's in post-colonial South Asia. So while I continued to work on my manuscript and eventually publish it, um, the one about the two little kingdoms, and I continued to write some more articles, um on the 19th century and um, I moved to post-colonial politics. This is what students were interested in. This is what my colleagues in the Nordic region were interested in. And I felt that I could have a more active intellectual life if I worked on post-colonial politics. But in so doing, since I was and still am interested in political culture. It was, and because I had done this work on a pre-colonial institution and its adaptation, this meant that I was particularly sensitive to issues of continuity and changes in major values and concepts over a period of time into the uh, post-colonial period. And I retired from um, the University of Oslo in uh, January of 2012. So um, this is a book which is an edited collection of, of your writings for over quite a long period. And as you touch upon in the introduction of the book, um, the various chapters deal, I suppose, broadly with continuity and change in, in various different settings. And I was wondering, what does bringing all these different um, articles together as chapters in one volume. What does this tell us about continuity and change in South India? Well, there's been a debate among historians about the extent to which colonial rule changed cultural conceptions and structures in India in general. To simplify, on one side, there are those who argue that British cultural hegemony was extremely powerful, resulting in overwhelmingly sharp changes, including in how Indians viewed themselves and each other. On the other side are those who argue that Indians exerted considerable agency in their interaction with colonial institutions, that pre-colonial cultural values and conceptions became reworked to various degrees as people sorted out their lives. This position finds areas of social and political interaction 
where there was much leeway for cultural creativity, resulting in both continuity and change. I guess it's uh, pretty obvious that I hold the second view. I feel that the chapters illustrate the second position because they cover a range of political domains over two centuries, from the early 19th century to the early 21st century. Discussed are two little kingdoms which became revenue estates, one in today's Tamil Nadu and one in today's Andhra Pradesh. There is a merchant caste on the Andhra coast, a political movement in the southern Tamil district, state-level political interaction in the state of Karnataka, and a village in United Andhra Pradesh, another state. These articles, to greater and lesser extents, deal with people's conceptions of honor, authority, and morality. And we can find, in reading these pieces together, conceptions in evolution. The new incorporating the old as people seek solutions to contingencies in their lives. Because the chapters include studies from post-independence India, they also speak to another debate about continuity and change. This revolves around the question of the extent to which political cultures in Indian states differ from the colonial period in those states. In no way does this book settle this issue, but I do suggest that trajectories of political change following independence are more easily understood as one investigates people's conceptions of legitimate authority and high political rank. Aspects of political culture changed slowly after independence, related to the slow rate of economic change, particularly in rural areas. However, in some parts of South India, it appears that from the 1980s onward, we can find major changes in power relations in rural society. More rapid political change seems to be taking place. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, now, the, you've, you've, you touched there about these, these, these three different ideas, um, honor, authority, and morality, and these are the this is the subtitle of of, of your book. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I guess what was I suppose what was interesting for you was was to to have these put together in in one volume and, and to reread these articles, which you've been obviously worked on for some of them decades ago. And I was wondering, mm-hmm. did did um, when in putting these together for the collection, did any new common themes emerge that that, that maybe weren't the original focus of the articles when you, when you wrote them? Did new things come out to you then? Yes. Um, I feel that in reading these articles together, 
one acquires some understanding of how complicated domination can be in India. I was, in writing most of these pieces, I was more focused on the nature of political integration and fragmentation. But now I see that another aspect of this is, in fact, domination. Now, for one thing, domination at different levels, political levels, has been closely tied in Indian society to the need for various types of protection. We're talking about societies with weakly functioning institutions of the state, or to put it another way, societies without state-supplied safety nets. This dependency on persons with superior control over resources has informed popular conceptions of legitimate authority and constituents of political rank. We also, with the collection, get insight into cultural sources of political resistance, though that is a lesser theme. But in this collection, we find the illustration of modes of moral reasoning and notions of fairness. And this connects to how people think about resisting domination. As I was writing the original articles, there were many different types of phenomena I was trying to capture and set down, many different themes to deal with, perhaps because there were so many different aspects to domination and the achievement of authority. It was only when I was putting the collection together did I realize that domination ran through most of the articles. Thank you for that. So people who are regular listeners to the show know usually we we deal with monographs or and um, so where we'll do it we'll ask usually some questions about each of the chapters of the book but because this uh, is an edited collection and uh, and it has many different chapters on many different themes then we won't be able to do this so we're going to focus on on three of the chapters um on today's show so the first chapter we'd like to focus on is the second chapter and this is a chapter which is about caste conflict in the town of uh, Masulipatnam which is located in what's now Andhra Pradesh in the 19th century now in this chapter it's a fascinating chapter it explores sort of the public nature of these caste conflicts but before we talk about the case itself and, and some aspects of the um aspects of the com- of the conflicts. I was wondering if you could tell us the distinction that you make, uh, actually distinction you make in the subtitle between acting in public and, and forming in public and why this distinction is important to understand such conflicts. The term acting in public refers to a major constituent of state-society relations in late pre-colonial South India much significance was given to appearing in public arenas in rank order. Whether we are talking about the assemblies of rulers, great or little chiefs and kings, or village festivals. Ritual exchanges in public arenas 
outlined the political order in domains which had high levels of segmentation. Also important was the rank order of participants in ritual performances in temples. Temples played important roles in the reproduction of kingly cosmologies. Issues of rank in political ritual were sources of much conflict and could contribute to the fragmenting of a domain. Ritual interactions did not contribute to the formation of a public, I maintain, because the concerns of participants were particularistic. They were local in nature. What rank a person held was important to him and his family and his lineage. It was of universal concern only as it affected the rank of others in the domain or the perceived legitimacy of the ruler to make such such decisions. This kind of appearing in public was of a different order than the concerns of the men who appeared in public arenas in the last half of the 19th century in South Indian towns. Here, participants articulated common concerns regarding policies of the colonial government, and they felt that they acquired strength as a group in their encounters with the administration. Some of them articulated pride in being public men, men who were engaged in issues that concerned a large number of people. They were a public that took part in civil society institutions. They were not part of the apparatus of the state, but they transcended the particularistic concerns of family. This distinction frames the actions of merchants in the litigation, which is the focus of the article. The time period is the early 19th century. In some senses, the merchants were acting with reference to a very old distinction in South India between left and right-hand caste factions. But more importantly, they were moving away from that social division and choosing as their opposition a group of Niyogi Brahmins who were denying them the right to perform certain Sanskritic rituals. This was a conflict about caste rank, and there was much litigation of this nature in South India in the 19th century. But I found that processes of litigation contributed to new types of social relations in caste. And in thinking about caste membership, Conflicts were not the concerns of specific families that wanted to change their status, but attempts were made to mobilize caste members over an area. These new social relations resembled more the publics that later emerged in urban areas than the ritual ordering in public which characterized earlier state-society relations.
Thank you. And so, obviously, because this is a period where colonial rule started to started to interweave with um, such conflicts, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the way colonial rule affected the conflicts. Well, the expansion of the apparatus of the state in terms of revenue collection and centralized legal system resulted in more horizontal linkages in society as opposed to the very localized vertical organization associated with pre-colonial political segmentation. The article deals with the horizontal linkage effects of litigation. The consolidation of colonial rule by the 1830s spelled the end of left-hand, right-hand conflicts as salient in social interaction. The non-Brahmin, Brahmin conflict only expanded in the course of the century, in part because of the extensive hiring of Brahmins in the lower levels of state administration. Also, it was mostly Brahmins who entered the legal profession as it became Indianized in the last half of the 19th century. As I illustrate in the article, however, it was a particular style of Brahminical reasoning which came to predominate in the colonial legal system and in association with the administration. In Musali, Putnam, Vaidika Brahmins, priestly Brahmins associated with the Komatis reasoned very differently about caste status than the Niyogis, who took a stricter position. The Niyogi way of making absolute distinctions, careful definitions, attachment to particular texts, appealed to British legal reasoning and thinking about regulation. So it was the Niyogi way of looking at caste which achieved dominance in the course of the 19th century. Thank you. That's fascinating. Um, let's let's move a little bit in our geographical focus and, and talk a little bit now and then about Chapter 4. Chapter 4 is called um, Kingly Models in Indian Political Behaviour, and it's partly um, deals with um, Tamil Nadu and also Bengal, but I think it speaks to um, speaks to the, the subcontinent as a whole, and you, you hint at this a little bit. Now, in this chapter, you're analysing the importance of leaders as foci of political activity in India, and what's really What's really nice as a as a as a reader is you take us through these three different um, eras: the pre-colonial, the colonial, and the, and the, and the post-colonial. So I was wondering, could you tell us a little bit about the nature of monarchical structures and how they've continued through these three periods? I came across the notion of kingly models as I tried to make sense out of aspects of post-colonial Indian behavior, political behavior. As I make clear in the article, there are other models and styles of doing politics. I had been involved in a long-term study of the adaptation of two little kingdoms to colonial rule in the Tamil country. So I had been reading widely about royal institutions and values and symbols in pre-colonial India and was particularly taken by notions of political segmentation. Large royal domains 
ruled over smaller royal domains, which in turn included yet smaller domains with village lords. Also striking was the way institutions of worship supported notions of monarchical rule and the honor of ruling. Hindu gods and goddesses ruled the cosmos and worshippers honored them with offerings and they thought of serving them. Gods and goddesses in temples were associated with monarchical symbols. By the 18th century, throughout India, it appears that notions and symbols of royal lordship had penetrated localities as ways to represent authority. A lord was, above all, a protector. Pre-colonial kings had armies, local chiefs had bands of followers, and village heads had their strongmen. But lords protected their domains also through endowing sites of worship, organizing the management of disputes, and appropriately distributing resources, mainly through acts of generosity. Because monarchical domains were segmented, the effect of imperial pacification in the directly ruled areas of the British Empire was the truncation of monarchical institutions, not the complete collapse of monarchical ideologies. Now, in the colonial period, Privileged landholding in these revenue estates, for example, continued in parts of directly ruled British India. But there was also the large areas of princely India where ruling families were diminished in their capacity to act, but where ruling families still had a lot of influence and there was a lot of validity given to royal symbolism. Also in the colonial period were, of course, the continuation of institutions of worship. And all this implied about support for concepts of lordship and honor and service. And also in the colonial period, I think we can say that in relations of patronage and clientelism in rural society, one finds the reproduction of notions of lordly ruling authority. Now, in post-colonial India, worship and religious texts continued to inform notions of legitimate authority. As I mentioned earlier, the slow rate of economic change in rural society until fairly recently meant that dominant caste patronage and notions of the protecting village lord helped to reproduce patrimonial values of leadership. <coughs> Anthropologists doing village studies often talked about dominant landholders in the village as performing a royal function. In caste society, there's also been a focus on authority as personalized. 
This means that there has been, since independence, widespread focus on the superior person, usually male, who has the power to affect one's well-being through personal discretion. To achieve authority and ruling honor, <coughs> a leader needs to be represented as generous, personally generous. Generosity was a prime value of rule in pre-colonial and chiefly societies. High political status in rural Hinduism in particular can hold for many people elements of divine ruling authority. This is because in popular Hinduism, there have not been sharp distinctions between the divine and non-divine. Some elements, some persons are more divine than others and there can be a range of divine attributes. Also in monarchical cosmologies, there were not sharp distinctions between royal and non-royal. In late pre-colonial India, in many parts of the subcontinent, royalty was an achieved status. It was not an exclusive quality. And there were degrees of royalty. Such fluid attributions of ruling status have informed attitudes toward leadership among groups after independence. In making these observations about the lordly, kingly model in leadership, though, as I want, I want to say, I'm, I'm not excluding other styles of leadership. For example, there's the boss, the political boss, people who represent themselves as social workers. We can talk about chief ministers of a state who are more like captains in administering. There can be the guru model, as Paul Brass pointed out. Again, political culture was so conservative in the decades following independence, in part because of the slow rates of economic change. And in the last two decades, we've seen new developments in political culture. Okay, thank you very much. And so in chapter seven, and now we'll move on to talking a little bit about um, Karnataka. This chapter is called Examining Political Language. In this chapter, you explore um, the honor and respect in, uh, in independent Karnataka. And what I really liked about this chapter is how you bring together many different ideas of honor and respect in politics, um, but also you weave these together with concepts used by ethnographers working in quite different settings around Karnataka and also regional literature like uh, the famous uh, Malgudi days. But I thought, right before we talk about the... Um, uh, in detail about the concepts and how these are expressed in politics, I thought we should talk also a little bit about the different types of respect and honour that you delineate um, using uh, the Canada, which for those people who are not familiar with the region is the is the state language of, of Karnataka, the, the, these concepts. So you have um, Stanamana, Mana, Guruwara and Swabimana. I was wondering, we're going to probably... <coughs> A little, we're probably going to return to these, but I thought it might be worth delineating these for the listeners before we go into detail. Yeah, it was a surprise to me, used to I am, you know, the English language, 
to find so many different words. Um, when I did this work in Kanarika, and then later when I did research in a village on a somewhat similar topic in Andhra Pradesh, there's a wide lexicography. Now, these are main concepts which appear in this piece. Stanamana was the high status of political rule. It was honor, but it was a very high ruling honor. Mana could mean the personal qualities that one had as an honorable member of a community, behaving appropriately, following through in one's obligations, doing nothing that would make one lose face. But mana could also mean, in some contexts, one's own self-respect. Now, garava was a word that has many associations, but quite often was used to mean the respect which is shown a person who has honor. And swabimana was another word which referred to self-respect, the uh, dignity that you feel that you have. Uh, right. Okay. Okay. So now we, we've, we've got those in our minds. I guess we can turn now to the case itself. So how do, how do honor and respect play out in respect to Karnataka's politics? Politicians will sometimes justify an action that they have taken in the language of honor and respect. And in 1997-98, when I was in Karnataka over eight months, there were more tensions than usual in the party that was in power in the state, the John Tadal. As politicians decided which party leader or faction they would follow, they would explain leaving one group or joining another in terms of how they were personally treated. Their self-respect was challenged, they might say, or they would say that they and their followers had been humiliated. My interest here was in taking part in a debate about the nature of the relationship between elite politicians and ordinary voters. One position was that elites, political elites, were westernized, while the masses were vernacular in their political language. Also, that they shared different assumptions about the role and functioning of the state. Um, Kaviraj and Patrick Chatterjee um, did some writing which represented this point of view. Another position focused more on political elites as having modern, quote, modern notions about society and governance, while the norms of the mass were of a traditional segmented society. With this piece, I wanted to show that the language and symbolism of political elites 
could respond to popular notions of moral social ordering. Using the language of honor and respect resonated with popular ideas of how people of different statuses should be treated and how they could be expected to react if treated badly. Now, this choice of language, honor and respect, in all of its various terms, had another dimension. Political mobilization for elections was very much along caste lines in Karnataka by the 1990s. This kind of mobilization intensified caste competition and conflict. A politician in Karnataka had to be supported in the first instance by caste fellows and caste associations. However, to win elections, he or she had to make alliances beyond caste and, in some cases, religious boundaries. Here, a political language that transcended major social divisions was useful. The language of honor and respect called forth popular notions of a united moral community. In the article, I used ethnographic accounts and literature to suggest meanings attached to honor and respect. The accounts of Suzanne Hanchett of family rituals in two villages in Karnataka illustrated how families became constituted and maintained their reputations, partly through acts of honoring in rituals. A.R. Vasavi has written about rituals associated with agricultural production and found these to reinstate the moral order of a village. Included in understandings of moral order in Vasavi's relation, in their discussion, included in understandings was social status. This was articulated in ritual according to the norms of the dominant castes in a village. And low caste people who found their ritual roles to be degrading and damaging to their self-respect ceased work as menial servants with landed families. One observation of Vasavi, which I found particularly useful, was that behaving appropriately was of major significance in village society. The novels of Anantamurti and Arcane Ryan illustrate ways in which interactions in rural and town societies were characterized by shows of respect appropriate to a character status. The ethnographic accounts and the literature illustrate that honor and respect tie into notions of everyday morality and social intercourse, which have been profoundly a part of people's experience of life. References to honor and respect can project superiority and inferiority as appropriate aspects of social and political relations. On the other hand, notions of self-respect 
reflect low status and marginalized people's desire for dignity and recognition. Talking with scholars and politicians and journalists in Karnataka, I learned, though, that this language on the part of politicians could be used to present one's political choices as morally appropriate, as one sought to avoid the impression that one had acted opportunistically. Also, it emerged that different kinds of conflicts, including those over the distribution of resources, could be phrased or interpreted in terms of honor and respect. Still, though, use of this language could represent powerful emotions. It was not always a question of contrivance. Many politicians were preoccupied with their personal political honor and felt keenly what they perceived as humiliation. This kind of preoccupation could make for unstable relations with actors being quick to take offense. I deal with this aspect in the other chapter in the book on Karnataka politics, the splitting up of the Janta doll, the political party, first into two parties and then with another split, resulting in three parties where there had been just one the year before. There is quite a bit of splitting and fragmenting in Indian political parties. And I think that preoccupation with ruling honor is an aspect to take into consideration in trying to understand and explain these competitive dynamics. This brings another dimension of the language of honor and respect to the fore, how it relates to common notions of success in politics, winning an election, particularly becoming a member of the Legislative Assembly or receiving a high-ranking appointment. This gave one stanamana, high honor of rule, high political status. Here we get a sense of what people mean when they talk about feudal elements in post-colonial politics. For large parts of the population, it is appropriate to show honor and respect to persons who are dominant in a domain. This involved a personalization of authority as opposed to the authority which stems from an office and its regulations. It is a patrimonial element in Karnataka politics as elsewhere in India. A former prime minister of India, P.V. Narasimha Rao, wrote an autobiographical novel which illustrates in its language and action intense competition for the honor of rule in a fictitious Indian state. Narasimha Rao's from the South Indian state of Andhra Pradesh. And in the article, I use his account to amplify my points since they resonate with what I learned about Karnataka politics. The notion of being the highest of the high, the ruler of rulers, 
received expression in political ritual in Karnataka in the 1990s with throne-like chairs for chief guests at a political function or the distribution of special types of turbans associated with royalty. I was told that a low-status caste reportedly honored a former chief minister from their community with a gold crown, one that he is supposed to have helped pay for. Much of the attention to political styles in South India has been paid to Tamil Nadu politics. And this piece and the other one, which is its companion, illustrate some commonalities between Tamil Nadu and Karnataka. But the adoration of the leader was much more subdued in Karnataka in the 1990s than it was in Tamil Nadu when Jayalalita as chief minister was holding sway. Some people from Karnataka like to point out that their most famous film actor, Rajkumar, said, quote, I'm not a deity for you to pray to. We can find changes in political styles, though, when we consider that Jayalalita, now as chief minister, seems to have ceased presenting herself as Queen of the Tamils. And it seems, from what I can tell, that she is no longer encouraging members of the Legislative Assembly to prostrate themselves at, at her feet. <laughs> Thank you so much. I mean, I, I read this with, with great interest. I, I spent 18 months in Karnataka and went, uh, went through three chief, uh, four chief ministers in those 18 months, actually. So oh, really? Was, yes. Oh. <laughs> so it was like, it was like yeah, so um, some yeah, continuity and change, yes. <laughs> you uh-huh. can see uh, some things going yeah. on. So that was when the BJP was uh, was busy uh busy destroying itself and then with the elections mm. the elections in congress took over so um mm-hmm. yeah so it was fascinating to read so we've i mean this is always a problem on this podcast where we're limited slightly for time and we've only talk, talked about three chapters and there's there's 10 in total plus an introduction so i was wondering if there's any chapters or any ideas that you'd like to flag up for the listeners that i've not covered with my questions well i'm I was quite struck when I went to Andhra Pradesh in 2003-2004 over a six-month period. I was quite struck at how much change people in this village, which it was, which is in what is now Telangana, how much change they felt they had experienced politically and socially in their lives since the 1980s, including and since the 1980s. What was curious, though, is that even though the authority structure had flattened out considerably and people talked about how now every house had its own big person and the village lords were gone forever, what was really interesting was that in trying to convey the moral quality of political and social interactions, people used the language of honor and respect. It was a different, it was, uh, terms had changed, new terms had come into being, um, and I thought that was really extremely striking. Another example of uh, 
cultural continuity amidst uh, very striking political change. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, totally. I mean, I, I really I felt also um, when when I was when I was in Karnataka, these same things would come up. But even in in the face of rapid change, I was in a city that was changing quite quite a lot. These ideas of respect and honor were there constantly came up in everyday life, even because mm. people couldn't, couldn't quite always put the finger on things anymore. You know, if people could dress in fancy clothes, but not actually be, you know, a big man and have lots of money, people mm. found this, people found this disconcerting even, but still yet mm. the same, yet, the, yet they were talking about it with these same mm. concepts. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. This was, uh, this was wonderful. Um, I'd like to Thank you a lot for coming on the show and thanks a lot for your wonderful book. I really enjoyed it. I'd really strongly recommend uh, people to, to read. It's really nice to read all these collection of, of articles together in one volume. So I'd like to recommend it to the listeners and just uh, thank you again for coming on the show. Okay, well, thank you for asking me. I enjoyed it. Thanks so much for downloading the new books in South Asian Studies podcast. I've been your host, Ian Cook. Today we've been talking about the writings of Pamela Price, State Politics and Cultures in Modern South India. I hope you've enjoyed listening to the show, and I hope you'll download again in the future. ta -ra.